Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, child kidnapping, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the early months of 1908, the neighborhood of Little Italy was rocked by a wave of explosions. Every day, more and more bombs were going off, and there was nothing anyone could do about it. For the police at the NYPD headquarters on 300 Mulberry Street, this had become a fact of life. The headquarters was built at the top of Lower Manhattan in 1862 to keep the impoverished and overcrowded community in line. The ornate four-story building towered over the tenements, an imposing reminder that the police were always watching. But by the early 1900s, a new force had arrived in the city, a force that liked to use explosives to flex its power, the Black Hand. On March 2, 1908, a bomb exploded just down the block from the Mulberry Street Police Headquarters. This was too much for the police to ignore. It was time for the Black Hand to be put to bed, and there was only one man to end the madness, Detective Joseph Petrosino. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every week, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our second episode on Joseph Petrosino, the first Italian cop on the NYPD and one of its finest detectives. He would stake his career on battling the vicious black hand. In 1904, 44-year-old Joseph Petrosino was the most elite police officer in New York City. He had risen from a garbage man with a sixth grade education to a legend, helming the homicide department for 18 years and making headlines around the world. At the time, the Black Hand, a loose organization of criminals extorting Italian immigrants, was little more than a rumor with no faces to put to the name. But the terror they spread was devastatingly real. In September 1904, Petrosino was put in charge of the NYPD's newly created Italian Squad, a group of Italian officers dedicated to stopping the Black Hand's extortion. The squad was initially comprised of six men labeled by the press as the Mysterious Six. Like any special unit, the Six had humble beginnings. Instead of working from a special office, they were forced to meet in Petrosino's cramped apartment. Their resources were thin, and the task ahead of them was immense. 
1904, there were as many Italians living in New York City as in Rome, around 500,000. Rome had thousands of city police and federal police. New York, on the other hand, only had six Italian-speaking men in the entirety of Little Italy and Brooklyn combined. But Petrosino was confident that with careful police work, they could win over the community and cut the black hand out at the root. Petrosino taught the six all of his investigative tricks. Lesson one, disguises. Throughout his career, Petrosino had relied heavily on the disguise of a fresh-off-the-boat Italian laborer, and he taught his men how to play the part. Wear an ill-fitting suit. Mispronounce commonly mistaken words. Refer often to your loved ones back in the home country. People would hardly suspect them as a cop, and they could get all the information they'd need. Once their crash course was complete, the six took up undercover positions as laborers throughout the city. And they quickly found that the hand had operatives everywhere. One of the more common black hand shakedowns occurred on construction sites, where Italians made up a large percentage of the workforce. After a day or two of work, a laborer would begin to receive messages from the black hand saying that he owed a portion of his earnings to the black hand or his family would be killed. Typically, the man who received the letters first would, in fact, be a black hand operative himself. He would show them to everyone at the site to create a culture of fear and paranoia. The same man would then gather biographical information on the other workers and distribute it to his co-conspirators. Addresses, names of loved ones, place of birth. Those details would make their way into a threatening letter delivered to their door. Come payday, the original black hand mole was usually nowhere to be seen, off to infiltrate another construction site. Instead, a new black hand representative would appear to collect their tax. They made sure the workers understood that they would be back next month for their cut of the next paycheck. Eventually, the undercover Italian squad members were able to catch wind of the scam. They staked out the site until the Black Hand operative came to collect. And once they did... Police swarmed around the criminals, beat them to a pulp, and cuffed them. Unfortunately, there were thousands of construction sites across the city. New York's population was exploding, growing from 1.5 million in 1890 to 4.8 million by 1910, which meant a boom in sky-rise construction and thus more chances for the Black Hand to extort. The city that Petrosino knew like the back of his hand was changing every day, and the detective himself was no longer a young man. Even his photographic memory was becoming a relic. And the next generation of criminals was faster and more brutal than any he had known. No matter how many thugs Petrosino arrested, the Black Hand letters kept coming and the death toll kept rising. The detective was losing control. Coming up, Petrosino goes to desperate lengths to take back his city. Now, back to the story. In the mid-1900s, New York's Little Italy was facing a crisis. The Black Hand had the neighborhood under siege, shaking down citizens every payday. 
Joseph Petrosino and his Italian squad scoured the streets, cracking down on the terror. But for every arrest, it seemed as if two more Black Hand operatives appeared. It was enough to drive even the most dedicated detective mad. Luckily, 45-year-old Petrosino was able to find an oasis in the endless desert. For years, after a long day of work, Petrosino would make his way to a small Little Italy restaurant called Solino's. It was a humble, family-owned restaurant where the wife ran the kitchen, the waiters spoke in regional Italian dialect, and folk music filled the air. The restaurant's owner, Vincenzo Solino, was a veteran of two European wars. He moved to America to escape the violence he had seen far too much of. Vincenzo and Petrosino stayed up late many nights playing cards, with Petrosino sometimes getting so worked up over a loss that he would rip the deck to shreds. He wasn't just there for the gambling, though. He had his eyes on a bigger prize. Over the years, Petrosino had grown close with Solino's daughter, Adelina, one of the waitresses. Adelina was a widow 11 years his junior who spoke little English. Sources differ regarding the timeline, but by 1906, the great detective had asked for Adelina's hand in marriage. He was a good match, well-paid, respected in the community, and already had a close confidant of Adelina's. To Petrosino's surprise, though, her father Vincenzo forbid the marriage. The detective was in the newspapers every day. It was public knowledge that his life was in constant danger. Vincenzo had moved to America to escape violence. He would not allow his daughter to be caught up in the same kind of madness. Petrosino decided to wait, returning to Salino's night after night, talking with Vincenzo and Adelina. If he couldn't marry the brown-eyed waitress, they could still form an odd kind of family. Salino's was becoming his only escape from the chaos outside its doors. Every day, Petrosino and his men were taking more drastic measures to fight the Black Hand, and they were losing. By 1906, the Italian squad had grown beyond the original Mysterious Six, and the rough-and-tumble unit was fully operating by the rules of street justice. In one sting, two detectives posed as pharmacy clerks, handing out laudanum and nerve pills while waiting for Black Hand operatives to arrive and collect their regular extortion payments. When three men arrived to receive their payment, the victims signaled discreetly to the detectives, these were the criminals. When the undercover detectives revealed themselves, the three Black Handers took off. The detectives leapt over the counter, out of the store, and onto the street outside. During the madness, the Black Handers noticed a streetcar making its way up the street and decided to make a run for it. The trolley barreled down 2nd Avenue at 20 miles per hour, but the fastest of the squad managed to catch up with the car and leapt through the open door. One of the three Black Handers, Paolo Castellano, saw the detective enter and hurled himself out the window. He landed on the cobblestones and took off running. The detective leapt out after him, drew his pistol, and began firing into the crowded street. He eventually hit Paolo in the hip, sending him to the ground. All three Black Handers were taken into custody. 
they dragged Paolo all the way to the station with a bullet buried in his hip. But it would take more than bravado and a cavalier disregard for public safety to overcome the black hand. The group's membership was growing by the day because the money was just too good to pass up. Recent Italian immigrants were struggling to make ends meet. Extorting your neighbors is an unsavory way to make a quick buck, but desperate times call for desperate measures. And extorting construction workers was just the beginning. Soon, Petrosino learned from his network of informants that the Black Hand was moving on to a more sophisticated scheme. In every Italian-American neighborhood around the country, Black Hand associates, which were rumored to number in the tens of thousands nationally, were told to apply for jobs at banks. Generally, they took entry-level positions as tellers. They would use those new jobs to track the financial moves of the entire Italian-American community, noting big deposits, weddings, inheritances, anything that made for a good mark. Over the course of the early 1900s, many Italian immigrants were getting rich in their new homeland. In New York alone, they controlled over $120 million in property and another $100 million in investments. And the Black Hand wanted a cut of everything. Petrosino was an expert on street crime, but these white-collar machinations were incredibly hard to prosecute. The only way to stop the Black Hand from growing was to cut them out at the root by preventing Italian criminals from moving to the States in the first place. The detective was convinced that career criminals from Italy were being shipped over to America to form criminal syndicates in the New World. The Italian squad had racked up thousands of arrests and hundreds of convictions in their few years of existence. But if they wanted to disrupt this pipeline, they needed to catch a bigger fish. In March of 1907, they got one. A ship called the California was carrying a group of Italian immigrants to New York. Among them was Enrico Alfano, king of the Neapolitan Camorra, the preeminent organized crime outfit in Naples. Alfano had been forced to flee the country after murdering a pair of aristocratic police informants in Naples. He was now one of the most wanted men in Italy. These murders were heavily reported on by both the Italian and the American press. And although he half-heartedly disguised himself as a laborer, it was well known that Alfano was on the California headed straight for Ellis Island. If Petrosino could catch Alfano, he had incontrovertible proof that Italian criminals were escaping to New York City to set up shop. Petrosino's informants told him that Alfano entered the city on March 21, 1907, under the assumed name of Giuseppe Ballesteri. They also said that he was immediately taken underground by members of his Camorra syndicate. Their plan was to lie low until the police gave up looking for him. But the 47-year-old Petrosino was more than willing to wait. He built a career on his patience. For nearly a month, Petrosino heard nothing about Alfano's whereabouts. Then, on April 17th, he hit a lucky break. 
two members of the Italian squad were dining at a local restaurant when they noticed a man who looked eerily similar to the photos of Alfano distributed around the station. The detectives ran back to headquarters to tell Petrosino, but instead of going in guns blazing, the canny detective decided to play things a little differently. He called up a reporter friend from the Evening World and invited him out to lunch at the same restaurant where Alfano had just been seen. When they entered, Petrosino immediately focused his attention on a table in the corner with six men huddled together. At the center was a man with a large scar that ran from his left ear to his mouth, Enrico Alfano. The reporter, meanwhile, buried his nose in the menu. He was totally startled when he felt Petrosino's hand on his arm. The detective told him to prepare himself. Petrosino stood up, all five feet three inches of him, and barreled towards the table of six, bellowing, Alfano. Alfano stood up. He hadn't been spoken to so rudely in years. Before he knew what was happening, Petrosino slapped him with such force that he was thrown back against the wall. Alfano's companions knew Petrosino by reputation. They refused to intervene. They got out of the way while the detective slapped Alfano again, then dragged him out of the restaurant by the collar. Alfano's arrest became an international news sensation. Once he was shipped back to Italy, he stood for a historic 17-month trial that ended in a 300-year prison sentence. It was one of the most successful anti-organized crime trials in Italy's history. And it was all thanks to Joseph Petrosino. Unfortunately, the arrest proved to be of little consequence to the fight against the Black Hand. Despite the Italian squad now numbering in the 40s and racking up arrests left and right, the Black Hand's ranks were growing at an even faster pace. Frustrated, yet still determined, Petrosino knew that if he wanted to finally bring an end to their terror, he was going to have to do something drastic. Something that would take him off the streets of New York and across the Atlantic. Coming up, Petrosino leaves his new squad behind to go on a daring mission to Italy. Now, back to the story. In March 1907, 47-year-old detective Joseph Petrosino had just arrested a notorious Sicilian criminal and shipped him back to Italy to await justice. The trial was an international news sensation. But back at home, it was business as usual. The arrest did nothing to stop the Black Hand's influence on the streets of New York. At this point, Petrosino's battle against the crime syndicate seemed hopeless. He still found solace in his regular visits to Solino's restaurant. He and Adelina would never be allowed to marry, not as long as her father was alive, but seeing her face after a hard day was enough for Petrosino. In December of 1907, however, Adelina's father Vincenzo passed away. It was a heavy loss for Petrosino. Vincenzo had been a close friend to him. But it also presented an opportunity. Just a few weeks later, he proposed to Adelina again. This time, with no one standing in her way, she said yes. Adelina didn't want a big wedding. Between Petrosino's notoriety and her father's recent death, a small affair was called for. So on Monday, January 6th, 1908, 
Petrosino slipped out of work and headed to St. Patrick's Cathedral on Mott Street. They tried to keep the wedding quiet, but along with the couple's friends and family, all of the Italian squad was in attendance. The next day at the 300 Mulberry Street station, a blushing Petrosino was greeted with a standing ovation by his fellow officers. The couple moved into a new apartment at 233 Lafayette Street. Petrosino left Adelina with strict instructions, never raise the blinds and never open the door. He advised her to never open the mail, as she might be frightened by the dozens of death threats he received every day. Petrosino was playing a dangerous game. The expert detective with nothing to lose, a man who seemed to be married to the job, was starting a family. And he knew what happened to the families of those who angered the Black Hand. Despite Petrosino's best efforts, his enemies were getting more brazen by the day. In early 1908, a series of bombings rocked the Northeast. February 20th, 1908, a bomb in Fairview, New Jersey, sent a house flying into the air. One renter on the top floor had the top of his head sliced right off and died instantly. March 2nd, a black hand bomb exploded near the 300 Mulberry Street police station in Little Italy, sending shockwaves throughout the neighborhood. May 23rd, a disguised bomb on Mott Street exploded on a street corner, killing a young boy and gravely injuring five other children. In response to the terror campaign, Petrosino formed the NYPD's Bomb Squad, a unit that is still in operation today. But public opinion was finally turning against him. After five years of fighting the Black Hand, the syndicate had only grown more powerful. Editorials from as far away as San Francisco complained that the Black Hand had taken total control over many American communities. The Detroit Free Press even argued that the fault lay directly in Petrosino's hands. In the summer of 1908, a desperate Petrosino came up with a final gambit so crazy that it had to work. He would travel to Italy to investigate the local criminal organizations there. Once he knew who the key players were, he would create a list and make sure those people were banned from ever entering New York. Petrosino was tired of the revolving door between the Italian penal system and American streets. If he could keep the worst offenders from seeking asylum in New York, then the nightmare of the Black Hand would end. The idea was unprecedented. An American cop operating with carte blanche in a foreign country for the first and maybe the last time in history. But the legend of Petrosino would allow it to happen. Petrosino was scheduled to ship out in February 1909. But in the months leading up to his departure, the normally unflappable detective became consumed with paranoia. No doubt this stemmed from the recent birth of his daughter, Adelina Bianca Giuseppina Petrosino. The baby girl made the fight against the Black Hand even more personal. For five years, Petrosino had been a major thorn in the organization's side. Once he was across the Atlantic, there was nothing to stop them from going after his daughter in retaliation. As his departure date grew closer, his paranoia became extreme. 
One day in January of 1909, Adelina's niece was walking down a street in Little Italy with the newborn baby. She saw Petrosino headed her way and called out, Uncle Joe, look, I have the baby. Petrosino walked by without so much as making eye contact. When she got back to the Petrosino's apartment, he was waiting for her, furious. He yelled, don't you ever recognize me on the street when you have the child. For their own safety, his family had to stay as incognito as possible, especially once he wouldn't be there to protect them. On February 9th, 1909, the 48-year-old detective finally boarded a ship to Genoa under an assumed name. He brought with him a pistol, letters of introduction, and the names of almost a thousand Italian criminals whose records he wanted to search. As the ship departed, he stayed out on the deck, even after the other passengers had all retreated, watching his new family disappear into the horizon. After nearly a week and a half at sea, Petrosino landed in Genoa on February 21st. Next stop, Rome. In Rome, the detective met with the National Chief of Police, Francesco Leonardi. Petrosino told his counterpart that he intended to travel to Sicily, track down criminals who had escaped him in America, and copy their legal records to send back to the States. Leonardi could immediately tell from his tone that Petrosino thought his legend would give him free reign in Italy. He was sorely mistaken. Leonardi warned him that Sicily was practically its own country, with a murder rate 50 times higher than the mainland. Even the Italian police treaded lightly there. But Petrosino gave no indication of the paranoia that had consumed him in the previous few months. He simply thanked the man for the warning and left, continuing on his journey south. His next stop was personal business. After 36 years apart, Petrosino finally got to see his brother Vincenzo in Padula, 230 miles south of Rome. But the reunion wasn't as happy as Petrosino had wished. The moment he stepped off the train, he saw that Vincenzo was upset. Then he noticed the newspaper in his brother's hand. Vincenzo insisted he read it immediately. Almost a week before, a local news story announced that New York's famed detective Joseph Petrosino was headed to Italy. The NYPD had leaked the news in an attempt to show the public they were taking drastic measures against the Black Hand. Petrosino's cover was already blown. Every hood in Italy knew to look out for him. But he played off his fear for his little brother. He had always been the subject of media scrutiny, he reasoned, so why should this be any different? By February 27, 1909, Petrosino was in Palermo, Sicily, confident as ever. He met with the Palermo police commissioner, Baldassare Ciola, and told him about his plans to investigate his New York suspects. Ciola took the famed New York detective for an out-of-touch bumpkin, far less educated than most of the gangsters he was going after. Ciola even offered him a police bodyguard. But Petrosino refused. He'd never had a partner during his decades in the NYPD, and, more importantly, the Sicilian police were notoriously corrupt, as even Leonardi had warned. The bodyguard may have actually been a state-sanctioned assassin. 
The American detective was left alone, though he quickly regretted it. He was recognized at least a dozen times in his first week in the city by criminals he'd once chased out of New York. Old enemies who'd fled back to Italy were now flocking to Palermo to get their revenge. It was open season, and this time, the gangsters were hunting detectives. Petrosino, ever the professional, soldiered on. He searched through police records and met with sources he developed in New York over the years who had returned to Sicily. On March 12, 1909, he learned that one of those informants wanted to meet with him that evening. He had important information to divulge. That evening, Petrosino returned to his hotel on the Piazza Marina near the sea. In the days of the Inquisition, the same square had been used by priests to kill heretics. But that night, it was picturesque, shining in the light of the newly installed gas lamps. At 7.30 p.m., Petrosino went to a nearby restaurant and ordered a small feast. Pasta, fish, fried potatoes, cheese, peppers, fruit, and a half bottle of wine. He ate as if it were his last meal. At around 8.40 p.m., Petrosino finished his meal and made his way back to the meeting spot at Piazza Marina. A block away at that same time, a man was walking up via Vittorio Emanuele when the streetlights suddenly shut off. He heard two gunshots, followed by four more. The man ran in the direction of the noise and found the body of a short, heavy man lying motionless in the middle of the Piazza Marina. Joseph Petrosino, the Italian Sherlock Holmes, perhaps the most storied detective in the NYPD, was dead. While his killer was never identified, there was no shortage of men who wanted to see the famed detective dead. In the end, no matter who pulled the trigger, Petrosino was killed by his own reckless pride. In his pocket, the investigators found a notebook, 30 business cards, and a postcard to Adelina that read, A kiss for you and my little girl, who has spent months far from her daddy. News of Petrosino's death spread like wildfire. When Teddy Roosevelt was asked about the murder the next day, he was shocked. He eulogized his old friend with the following words, Petrosino was a great man and a good man, I knew him for years, and he did not know the name of fear. When Petrosino's body arrived back in New York two weeks later, 250,000 people watched the procession, more than came to see President McKinley in 1901. The great detective had become a victim of his own myth, overconfident in one of the most dangerous places for a police officer in the world. But there was a method to his madness. 1909 was a tipping point. Over the next 20 years, the mafia on both sides of the Atlantic would reach a level of power unrivaled by organized crime before or since. Mafiosos continued to move between countries to avoid law enforcement, bringing new criminal techniques with them. If Petrosino had been able to keep Italian criminals from entering the country, he may have stopped this wave of crime before it even began. But it wasn't meant to be. 
within a year of Petrosino's death, there was a new mayor in New York City, and the Italian squad was shuttered. The police were on the take, and the mob was on the rise. They would soon control all organized crime in New York City. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. For more information on Joseph Petrosino, amongst the many sources we consulted, we found The Black Hand by Stephen Tolte to be particularly helpful. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Gareth Imperato, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Merton. 